This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Y- yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And I almost forgot to say Christopher. I almost just said TDPS Presents. Yeah, Christopher's blood sugar's running low. I don't know, I know. what's going to go on. I don't know if he's going to make it through this episode. Which is ridiculous because you have equipped our kitchenette here at the studio with every form of glucose known to Walmart. It's really, it is, it is yeah. very... Glucose heavy. It's um, very glucose there's a heavy. A lot of uh, chocolate a in there. A the lot other of chocolate. And the older Fair one gets, the older one gets, the less possible it is to eat a lot of chocolate without consequences. Yes, we're talking about dieting again here on the podcast, which we said we wouldn't do ever again, ever, ever, ever. Actually, Christopher, you're talking about sleeping. Christopher <laughs> has a cookie and Face plant. I'm talking about farting, actually, because this is a really high-toned, sophisticated, oh, upmarket culture have, podcast. That has nothing to do with chocolate. Don't blame that on chocolate. Everything. Christopher could have communion wafers. <laughs> Shut up. That's not true. And have a raging belch attack. They like, can fart all over the... Yeah, no, that's, that is completely... Yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. not chocolate. All right. Well, we, we tag... Chocolate, too. We tag these podcasts explicit for a reason, and that's all the fart talk that we have here at TDPS. Right. it gets tough around here. We're absolutely. a rough guy. And, you know, certainly the reverent kind of tone we wanted to set for... <laughs> Today's topic is like, wow. You know, last week we we made this joke that I got into the description of the episode, the series that we were talking about in that event uh, too quickly. And then it was like, maybe not, because we sort of ran out of time at the end or we felt compressed for time. And I think we should maybe launch into it this week as well, because this is a two-part uh, true crime special that we were talking about on today's True Crime TV Club. And it is on HBO Max, and I'm going to give you our standard disclaimer, the Cindy Comforti rule, as we call it. You do not have to watch the special to enjoy the conversation we're about to have about it. Our job is to try to serve it up for you in enough detail that you will feel like you've watched it with us in the room barking at you the whole time. Our big 
fiery opinions. Cindy Conforti ruled. Cindy just wrote to us. Poor Cindy. We should leave her the fuck alone. No, Cindy and I message each other. Cindy, but, no. Cindy but she loves wrote us. to us and said, oh yeah, I really, like, I couldn't watch these shows. Like, I have, I much prefer hearing you guys talk about it than watching them. But uh, Cindy was being specific. She was talking about a commercial filled version of a show that we were talking about because we do cable and streaming stuff but we also do discovery id stuff all the time and she watched it with commercials and what's really clear is how much they repeat themselves when they come back from those commercial breaks and so she could not handle that so yeah dateline is really its own challenge like if you i used to have a tivo and i would watch them with skip and so it would jump right past where the commercials were and go to the next I think, and they would literally just say exactly the same exactly thing over the same thing. over again. When I do it now, um, if I watch it on commercial te- on regular television, I record it with my my Spectrum DVR, and mm. I just don't really rush about clicking play, right? Because you've got a minute or so there right. where they're just repeating themselves. So whenever you get around to it, hit play, and it's yeah. fine. But fast forwarding through the. Those odious old commercials. That odious are old for everything. There were no commercials in this. This is on HBO Max, no. as we said. Commercial free. This is called, and get this title correct if you are planning to watch it, because you could possibly enter the wrong one. It's called "What Happened, Brittany Murphy." It's "What Happened, Comma Brittany Murphy." It is not "What Happened to Brittany Murphy," which is what I thought it was called every time we talked about it before we got ready to do. Is this the question episode. mark part of the title? I believe so. So it's like they're asking Brittany, "What happened, Brittany Murphy?" Yeah. Yeah, I just. It's weird. I guess that's an. I guess ultimately, though she can't answer the question, it is the thing that is kind of the bigger mystery in the story. I mean, certainly she's no longer with us, but. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of when you listen to the story of like, what did happen? This is, huh? I, well, and that's I think we're going to get into that, and I think you're right. I think that's the tone of this documentary. They try to present as much evidence as they possibly can. They try to present opinions from all sides as much as they possibly can. They did a great thing. There is, they do a terrific job of that. And then there was a moment in the second episode where I was like. You saw me coming. You were, okay, we're going <laughs> to find out when we, we get there. there. I'll tell okay. you when they get there. It was like, oh, yeah. So this, the the uh, special has what I'm going to call a dual timeline. There's no buildup to the main event here. This is about the, the mysterious death of Brittany Murphy late one night at her home in Hollywood. That's where we start. And then we have a flashback timeline that roughly parallels and runs continuous with the 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 story that I opens. I bad for anybody who still lives in that house. Did you go to Google Earth and look it up? I didn't, but it's pretty close to where we are right oh now. Oh, my God. It's really close. And it was I had to go find it. Yeah. Because, like, they just kept saying it. And it was like, well, all right, then. And but, like, showing... Do people still live there? Like, my God. Showing the address over and over again. That house is 1895 Rising Glen uh, Road, I think it was. Yeah. Um, it is in the Hollywood Hills. On the night of December 20th, which is tomorrow from the day that we're, we're posting this episode, on the night of December 20th, 2009, a frantic 911 call is received from Sharon Murphy. That is the mother of Brittany Murphy. She is in the presence of Simon Monjack, her daughter's husband, and they are frantically trying to resuscitate Brittany. Uh, Sharon tells the operator that Brittany was complaining of dizziness and not being able to walk right due to a cold, and then she collapsed. It's harrowing 911 recording. Sharon is incredibly upset. She is screaming. 
Um, the 911 operator is trying to give Simon instructions on how to resuscitate Brittany. He's doing it wrong. He's doing it too slowly. They're saying do it faster, do it faster. Um, she is taken to Cedar sinai Hospital, which is the local hospital here in Hollywood and West Hollywood, and she is pronounced dead shortly after her arrival. We're introduced to Kathy Najimy. If you don't know who she is, where have you been? She is fantastic. Have you not seen Hocus Pocus at the very least? Or Sister Act. It's like, come on. Yeah, we love Kathy. Kathy worked. I, I, I think she was also the voice on King of the Hill. Yes, and I think Brittany was also a voice on King of the Hill, and I was think she? that's how they knew each other. Huh. I couldn't, I, I'm not sure Maybe I made so. that connection. Yes. She tells us that Brittany was an absolute light in the world. Like she basically verifies what every the, the character that you saw up on screen also existed in the real world. And they showed some footage of Brittany as a little girl and Adorable. it was like oh yeah. Mm -hmm. She really was that person. Like you see what those people and they interview lots of people that she worked with the director right. from um Clueless. From Clueless. Yeah. Uh, oh, you think I remember Amy Heckerling. Amy Heckerling, yeah. who was going to the last person who was supposed to direct Say Your Uncle. Your novel, Say Uncle, and actually right. Wrote, you think I'd remember her name. She actually wrote her own version of the script. Right. Um, but she talks about, there was just, there was just something about her. Yeah, there really was. So we get a dose of that. We see old footage of her as a little girl in New Jersey, which is where she's from, interviewing people, being a mock reporter at some little fair or something. Right. And she's completely charming and adorable. Uh, and then we go back to the unfolding consequences of her death, okay? And we're that introduced... day count thing, which is really... Which is, I never quite understood, and I didn't see how it connected to stuff. It really never did. It was yeah. just sort of, you gave you a sense of that part of the story unfolding. Right. They tell... They, whenever we went back to 2009, they flashed a day count that showed the number of days it had been since Britney's death. And the death. counter kind of would click up or down or yeah, back. It was, it didn't it was an it. unusual choice, and it was like, mm, all right, well, yeah. that's a thing you could do. So we're introduced to two people from that time. One is Amber Ryland. She is a journalist for Radar Online. Um, she gives us sort of the context in the background. And I thought she was just going to be a talking head, but it turns out she becomes a bit more involved in the case than yeah. we expected. Uh, and we're introduced to Ed, Whit Ed Winter. Excuse me. I had an attack of the Eds there. Um, he's the assistant chief coroner, and he responded to the residents uh, and describes the scene for us, and he, it sounds like, is the one that the LAPD puts in charge of the really high-profile, high-pressure death investigations, and specifically autopsies. And he seemed dubious. What do you mean, <laughs> dubious? He, he came and he saw the scene and the, what was going on. Oh, and he his, met, yeah. And he met uh, Mr. Monjack, and he was... Not convinced about anything. Oh, I see. You're not indicting his personal credibility oh, as being no. dubious. He yeah. seemed very credible. He yeah. seemed very professional and very credible. He was dubious of everything he right. saw and all that he was being told. He arrives at the house on Rising Glen Road. Uh, so he says, Simon Monjack, Brittany's husband, appears to be under the influence. He's pacing. He's not entirely coherent. And uh, his mother, or, excuse me, Brittany's mother is... Appears to be also out of it, but also way more emotional than Simon is, which was suggested by the 911 call right. as well. Uh, the story that they give him is that they were in Puerto Rico two weeks earlier. While they were there, Brittany became very ill. She'd been taking over-the-counter medications. They thought it was an upper respiratory thing. Uh, that morning, she went to the bathroom, and they discover her inside of it unresponsive. They try to revive her with a cold shower, which is like... Really? That happened before you called 911? You turned on a cold shower? Um, 
and they delayed CPR for that reason because she was they put her underwater instead. <laughs> so not a lot of sound medical decisions being made by the people who were there. Um, Amber Ryland, the journalist, says to us that immediately the chatter is overdose, right? That there there have been rumors um, that she's been losing and weight. Honestly, she's been using... I thought that also was the reaction from from they didn't say it, but the yeah. mom and the husband, like yeah. Like they, those are things you do to wake up a, a drunk person. You know right. what I mean? Cold water and yeah. Did they? Did somebody slap her in the face? Like, oh my god! The hesitation. This is a problem beyond drug abusing celebrities. The hesitation to call medical authorities because of the fear of disciplinary action gets a lot of people killed. I actually went to a school briefly, a college, where they made it clear that you could call health services. If somebody had had too much to drink, and it would never go on anybody's record, it would no one would ever be disciplined. And so, what I have to say is that it could make your friends a little overzealous sometimes. <laughs> you would come to from a night out, and the campus police would be there, even though they couldn't arrest you or fine you or do anything or report it. And it was like, I'm just fine. I just blacked out for a little bit. Why is that cop here? <laughs> but. There was a purpose behind the policy. Um, right. Because we don't want people hesitating. I think the same thing has been true in and around the opioid crisis. Right. We do not want people to he- to die of embarrassment or, you know, or for fear of yeah. legal consequences of having done illegal substances. But with celebrities, there's a different host of issues, which yes. is, is this going to get in the press? Is this going to get out? Will people talk about this? And, and that's what everybody was saying anyway. Yeah, was totally. that it was That was the sort of the take. At the time, although I remember contemporarily, the story that took with me is the one that's coming up. Mm-hmm. Like I never really got this part of the story. Um, it was the sick house theory. That- oh yeah. Okay, so we'll get to that in a moment. But then in the meantime, the timeline snaps back to New Jersey, October 1990. We sort of get introduced to Britney's home life, and we come to learn that her mother was a kind of a devoted stage mother. Um, not in the negative sense of the term. Stage mother can often imply controlling and sort of manic and overbearing. She was just committed to helping Britney realize her dreams of being an actor, and Britney absolutely wanted to be a big In fact, she star. was more the driving force. Her yeah. mom said, "Do you is this what you really want? And her mom then took her, because it was just the two of them. The right. father was long gone, had never been a part of her life, was never really... A player had any influence over, and so the mom was like, "Fine, then we'll go to Los Angeles and make our life there, and that'll give you the opportunity to be the movie star that you want to be." Exactly, and And so what happened? That's exactly what happened. So then we snap back to the first timeline, and we're three days after Britney's death. A private funeral is being held, and. On Christmas Eve. Because Britney died on December 20th, and Britney loved Christmas, and so everybody comments there's an irony to her being buried on Christmas Eve. There's also kind of a weirdness, but I'm, I'm not Britney Murphy's Really family. weirdness. Um, we're introduced to Sarah Hamill. She's a journalist for People Magazine's L.A. Bureau, or she was at the time. She is no longer in that job. Um, she says the consistent story. Do you know something I don't. They said former on the on the title card. I just read the title cards, girl. Is there is there scuttlebutt? No, <laughs> poor Sarah doesn't get dragged into this. Everybody else does. Leave Sarah out. Not of this. Sarah. She's Hamill. fine. She just moved on. She's got a different job now. Right. Okay. Fine. So the but the story that's emerging is that Simon Monjack was bad news. Uh, he and Brittany met in 2006. They got married shortly thereafter, and that ever since that time. She sort of dropped off 
any sort of social radar. Eric! Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So the story that's emerging is that ever since Brittany married Simon, he has essentially taken over her life. That anybody who has encountered them, which is not a lot of people because they've dropped off any well, kind of social... Well, in between them right. and her. Right. Like, she doesn't even have access to her phone anymore. Right. If you want to talk to her, you have to call him. Mm-hmm. That's a little odd and certainly controlling, and the friends have a really negative reaction to him as a result. And after her death, he requests that no autopsy be done. But Ed Winter says, Simon, that's not going to fly. <laughs> you're going to hear, you need to look at the pressure that's being brought to bear here. And yeah, it's say, not actually up yeah, to you, babe. Right. Um, Simon and Sharon continue to live in the house together at Rising Glen. And I think I might be jumping ahead here, but isn't this the time they do a photo shoot? Yeah. 
and they pose with Britney's photograph, and it they look like a couple grieving their lost child together. It's really, as a publicist they hire later says, it's not a good look for yeah. either of them. It was not anything he would have recommended yeah. for them, but yeah, it looks, it looks really bad. Simon is really weird. He puts, a, he comes across strangely. He's not popular with her friends. He's really getting, yeah, not good press as a result of it. Um, Simon even says when some a tragedy like this happens. They have to, you have, people have the natural instinct to pick a villain, and I'm the villain that they've picked. Right. Exactly. Like, he was not unaware that he was being, that some, that people were looking at him suspiciously around this very suspicious death. So, four days after Britney's death now, Amber Ryland, the reporter from Radar we talked about earlier, her boss says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out, you're going to buy, she's been staked out. Aside the house, like looking for any sign. Yeah, right, of them. she arrived during the crest, the crush of the immediate event, but now she's like left there by herself, just right. parked across the street. He says, "Go buy some flowers, get a card, knock on the door, you know, and give the bouquet and leave your business card with the flowers." So that's what she does. And Simon answers the door. She gives him the bouquet. She says, "I'm so sorry for your loss. If you ever want to talk about it, my name's Amber Ryland. Here's the here's my card." She's like four blocks from the house, and he calls her cell phone. And she's like, wow, I didn't expect, I I thought maybe there was a chance he'd call, but not that fast. So he's looking for somebody to talk to. So in that moment, we go back to the old timeline. We go back to the origins of Britney's career after her arrival in Los Angeles. We meet another actress who was a contemporary of hers, Lisa Rifle. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, We meet her first agent, Chris Snyder. And everybody's basically telling the same story. She had an unbelievable talent. She had unbelievable energy and drive. She was getting TV jobs all over the place, but she wanted to be in the movies, which was a much bigger deal back then. Like, TV was... She wanted to be a movie star. Yeah. TV was still network and still very that sort of thing, and she wanted to be... God, that makes me feel so old to say it like that, but it's the truth, because I remember this vividly. The thing happened really... Things happened... The... The nature of the entertainment business changed really recently. Yes. And we have become so accustomed to it, we tend to feel like it's been a long time ago. Yeah. Really, streaming is incredibly recent. And ultimately, I was reading the other day, a much smaller part of what's going on than we get the impression. Like, I think it was Harper's was talking about it's like under 10% of of viewing is happening on streaming. And most of the rest of it is still happening on regular that is yeah, astonishing I was like, to me. Wow. That is astonishing yeah, to me. Yeah, it is really it is um it is a surprising phenomenon. Anyway, we we have recalibrated yes. now, but in those days, yeah, back in the days of Clueless, movies and were let's a very big talk deal. about Clueless because that was her big break. That's what put her on my map. Yeah, that's when that's I saw what put her, her on the first everybody's time. Map. I love that movie so much. I was a young I was still in high school or maybe I just graduated high school. I totally identified with it. I thought it was hysterical. He was in grade maybe school. I was maybe in, I don't know. I might have been in college. I don't know. I could have just been starting water aerobics i don't know um but it was an amazing movie i pretended to be attracted to alicia silverstone when i saw it because i was still in that place who wasn't i know she's she's pretty attractive i'd go out with her if she asked well actually it was paul rudd but yeah yeah. (laughs) 
no, it was Christian, the gay guy in that movie. That's what I remember about that movie was it was the first time a really attractive gay guy who didn't get murdered or die a terrible death appeared on a giant movie screen before right? my young adolescent eyes, and he was hot. Um, okay, but she was younger than everybody else in the movie, which I didn't know. She was like the baby. She was actually the age of the characters in the movie, allegedly. Yeah. She was the only one. Everybody else was in their 20s, and she was actually like 17. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like yeah. she was just She was a high school kid. She was on the rise. So 32 days after her death, we go back to the main timeline. We meet Roger Neal, the publicist that Simon and Sharon hired after Britney's death. At this point, they have done a disastrous interview on Larry King Live, which was a premiere get on the, in the media in those days. Deal. It was a big deal. Larry King was a live interview on CNN every night of the week and Boy, did they do a bad job. Sharon looks altered and slurry. Simon also looks not quite sober. Simon looks like Simon. Simon yeah. never looks right. He is just a weird, he's a very strange man. And I'm beginning at this point, this point, and as we, for the for a while, I began to get the feeling of like, are we prosecuting this guy because he's weird? Yes, right. Like, because it's not really developing and it never really developed that something sinister happened in and around Britney's death. That night. There wasn't any evidence that something sinister happened that night, December right. 20th. Yeah. Right. And there kind of hasn't been. But mm -hmm. more and more this case is getting built against this guy. And I'm like, and this is, and the, the, the I think the series was playing into that. I'm starting yeah. to get the impression of, are we persecuting this guy because he's just weird? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we we don't see him with glamorous little um, Brittany. We think he's a weird choice for her, and he's just a weird guy. And you know, and that makes him culpable. And it, that would often happen off of a Larry King interview, like Patsy Ramsey, John Benet Ramsey's. The Ramseys did a Larry King interview, oh. and she looked like she had taken some sort of sedative before the interview, and people were all over her and yeah. said, "Oh, she's got no emotion, she's got no whatever." So, like, you needed a handler to get through shit like this. And you they really did. Were smart enough to realize that themselves, and they hired an actual publicist, and they did. And he becomes kind of a mainstay in this documentary. Yeah. He's interviewed a lot. Um, I uh, in the uh, the the in the interview, Simon makes a claim that doesn't seem borne out by the facts of that night, which is that Brittany said to him, "I'm dying, I'm dying, goodbye, Simon, goodbye." But they claim they found her non-responsive. So when she had the time to say that is not really clear, given the timeline yeah. of what they described. And then we meet. A friend of ours, Bruce Bibby. Who is actually on the uh, the dinner yes. party show, the earlier incarnation of one, this podcast. And one of our early episodes of that podcast. It was a fiery one, if I remember correctly. Oh, he and our, the other guest yeah, got into it about- they got into it about everything. Something. Everything. I can't even remember what, but Everything. Yeah. We lost control of the interview is what happened. Oh, Bruce was just being Bruce. <laughs> I've but known he, him a really long time, and, and he's likes he likes that sort of tease. I can just imagine being in school with Bruce. He would have been the tease that I was like, Bruce, I'm going to kill you if you don't yeah. stop it. But he is here. And, and you may know Bruce, if you're listening to us, as Ted Casablanca. He right. has chosen, apparently, in this documentary, we wouldn't be calling him Bruce if he hadn't used that name for the documentary himself, which he does. Yeah, he wrote under a name, starting in Premiere Magazine, I think, yeah. and then later was on E! Mm -hmm. um, as Ted Casablanca, which is a character name from Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. Totally. Which he adopted for some reason professionally, which is fun and lighthearted and kind of the opposite of Bruce. Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, Bruce can be fun and lighthearted, right. but that's not his professional persona. He can be also be very serious. And he's, he's a pretty customer. serious in this one. He's yeah. not called in to bring this sort of bitchy. He's bringing the kind of soul and the heart of this. And he would have been on the job, I yes. think, at, at this point, still reporting these uh, this particular story, and he was what did they call it? The 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 real dirt or the dirt or mm-hmm. the awful truth? The wasn't awful it? truth. The awful that truth with Ted Casablanca. So the the rumor is that, and I think this is later substantiated, is that around the time of Clueless or after Clueless, and Britney is really looking to level up in her career, she gets the following response from a producer about a part she doesn't get. She was cute, but she wasn't fuckable. And after that. Britney begins to change. She begins to work to try to change herself. Physically, she starts to, to lose a lot of weight, like a suspicious amount of weight. She starts to change her hair. I have to say, some of the changes around her hair, I thought she looked beautiful. She looked great. She starts to try to turn herself into a starlet, really. Like what she was in Clueless was a character actress. She was playing a character. Yeah, she's a great job. Right? But she wants to go for the leading lady roles, and she starts to get them. But first, we go back to 36 days after her death, because that's the timeline with the weird clock. Um, Simon agrees to meet Amber Ryland, the radar reporter, for dinner at the Chateau Marmont. Uh, He's nervous and sweaty. It's a very awkward meeting. And I think it's worth making, like, it was his idea, not hers. Yeah, exactly. Like, Amber agrees to have dinner with him at the Chateau Marmont. Like right. that's really what happens, which is also weird. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and, and then he's a mess. He's a mess, and he starts to try to take credit for Britney's entire career, which, given he only met her in two thousand and six, doesn't really wash. Clueless was, I think, in nineteen ninety seven, and that's when she broke out. Right. Um, and Amber gets the impression that he sees himself as the boss. Of the family, right? As having sort of taken over for both Brittany and her mother, managed their affairs, controlled everything, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to all those things later. Right. So then we go back to Ed Winter, who's in charge of the death investigation. Uh, He said, you don't need search warrants to go on any property during a death investigation. That was news to me. I think there's maybe a nuanced point there I didn't quite catch. Like, But yeah, I guess so. They're investigating her death. We can come in. We're free to check the medicine cabinets and the nightstands. And on Simon's side, they found 90, 90 prescription bottles prescribed to different names. Some are in Brittany's name. Some are in the name of an alias, Lola Manilo. Um, and Ed issues a search warrant for all of the prescribing pharmacies. That's a lot of prescriptions. And I would just like to take this moment to say, and the house... Looks like shit. Like shit. It yeah. just looks like a hoarder lives there or yeah. something. Like it's this fabulous house in this fabulous neighborhood, and it's just heaped with like rolling carts of clothes and storage bins. And the bathroom where she died was just every flat surface was covered with, I mean, it just looks like drug den yeah, to me. Totally. Totally. Uh, and he gives is this is I think this is when he gave Amber a tour and let her film, let her bring like a oh, yeah. sort of amateur camera crew along and film, and proudly gave this tour. And it's like she's like, oh my god, he's showing off. And it of, still looks like this. Yeah. They haven't cleaned up. There's apparently when she fell, she fell on like a little doggy chase lounge mm-hmm. that was by I don't know where what happened to the dog. It was never mentioned again. But when she fell, she went down on the dog bed, which was Jesus right next Christ. to the tub in the bathroom. It yeah. was just that kind of. Mess. It was just a mess. Yeah. 
So, uh, in, in accordance with the split timeline, we're back to Los Angeles in 2000. This is Brittany pursuing the next phase of her career after Clueless. We meet two, a couple filmmakers who worked with her during that time. One is Gary Fleeter, who directed, I think, one of her biggest movies, which was Don't Say a Word, which featured her as a sort of mentally right. detached uh, crime victim who had the key to this mystery Michael Douglas was trying to solve. And I remember it was the first big box office movie after 9-11. And I remember people being like, are we ready to go back to the movies yet? And are we ready to see this dark thriller set in New York? Right. And there's a shot of the Twin Towers in it that made everybody in the theater gasp when it came on. Right. Anyway, but she, there was this moment that became like iconic of her sitting on a bed going, I'll never tell, I'll never tell. And everybody <laughs> would do an impersonation of it. Um, but it was a big movie for her, and he clearly was quite taken with her. And... Um, she also did Eight Mile, and that was probably her starring yeah. role. She played opposite Eminem. That in Eight was Mile. the thing. That was the real. Yeah. When it was, she like, okay, this is really an actress. Exactly. Back to the timeline. Fifty-three days after her death. Weird clock. And that is when things really start to get interesting. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> Fifty-three days after her death, we discover that in Brittany's will, everything was left to her mother, Sharon. And they claim they're going to start a foundation. So Simon sends emails to her loved ones saying that he's starting this foundation and that its first act is going to be to charge people to attend Brittany's funeral. Which is incredibly disgusting, <laughs> and everyone agrees. I mean, people were like making tribute videos and stuff, and yeah. they were just like, "Ew." Gary Fleeter, who's a big director, was making a tribute video on his own time and at his own expense, and he gets this email saying, "It's you got to pay her foundation to attend her funeral." No, <laughs> that's no, never gonna fly. We're not doing that. Okay, and it just went away. Yeah, it just went away. He just stopped. He knew just, it, the whole yeah. thing just went away. Like the the, memorial, the whole foundation went away. The foundation yeah. went away. The memorial went away. It all just went away. Like it just yeah. like oh well, then never mind. Right, because they've already had her Christmas Eve funeral. Yeah, the the private service. Happened. This was a memorial they were doing for Brittany. Do and, you think he kept it private on purpose because he knew he wanted to charge for like the main event? Even I have, then, Jesus. I have, I you know like. I don't know. Like, yeah. he, he was such a strange person and such an odd character. And at this point, all you're getting from the producers is he's just this really odd character. But this is, like, the first moment of, like, huh. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. You all right there? <clears throat> Went down the wrong pipe. I don't know oh, what that I was about. <clears throat> but um, You got but a lot he, of pipes. But he's, You'll be fine. But it's also one of the—but um, the f- it also could just be, you know— 
awkward. It could be that sort of bad judgment of mm-hmm. how to do things properly and mm-hmm. and whatever. I don't know if we've met his family yet, but we're going didn't to really bolster my sense that oh well, you know what happened to him. Right, that's the big the big reveal at the end of the first episode. This is a two parter. Is that oh Simon's family has agreed has contacted the filmmakers and they've agreed to be part of volunteered to be part of this. So we're going to get to that in a minute. In, in 2003, she is dating Ashton Kutcher, and I was sort of with Kathy Najimy on this when they tried to interview her about this part. And she's like, I don't want to talk about this part of her life. Like, who cares about Ashton Kutcher? Like, she yeah. dated, so what? She dated Ashton Kutcher. It didn't work out. But I think the point of this segment was that her love life was not really coming together. She'd had a romance off screen with Eminem that didn't last any longer than the movie they made together. Uh, it doesn't work out with Ashton. A lot of people talk about it. There's a horrible clip of him talking about her on Howard Stern, your least favorite person on the fucking planet. Jesus Christ, that was disgusting. And they're just talking about her physical appearance. It's just, just like... Just disgusting. I just uh, yeah. wish... I wish that Howard Stern took it on the chin more for what he has done to the decline of our culture in general mm-hmm. for his sense of this free speech thing. It's like, yeah. you may be free to say that stuff, but like, why would you want to? Yeah, I, I just... Just yeah. gross. Anyway. Just gross. It was vile. And the way these clips play today, I mean, they play these clips of Justin Timberlake talking about Britney Spears back in their time. It was this, it was this presumption that if a hot, young movie star... If it didn't work out with the starlet, the starlet was crazy and it was her fault. Like it was just sort of heaped on and her. We're not saying that isn't possibly true. We but... don't know what the story is. That's the point. But yeah, the presumption is the problem. Anyway, um, so it's not happening, and then suddenly, around this time, she gets she she ends up in a meeting with Simon Monjack, which is like, who set up this meeting? I wanted more information on that. Like he had no credits. It was supposedly business related. And then they're almost instantly engaged. So there you go. Everyone in her life thinks it's too soon for them to get married, except for Sharon. And they posit that this is because Sharon knew what it was like to raise her child as a single mother, and she placed a premium on the idea of Brittany having a man in her life. Yeah. You know, a husband. Um, and that's when the changes that we started talking about earlier really start to take hold. Brittany starts seeing she's less social. Simon gradually begins to take over all aspects of her life and her business. And now we are 55 days after her death again because the autopsy results have come in. And we meet Dr. Lisa Shinen, who nothing's going to get by Lisa Shinen. You can tell. She's she a tough customer. Nothing. She misses nothing. The Judge Judy of the forensic Absolutely. world. She's not suffering any fools gladly. Um, And so the gist of the autopsy is that she was incredibly dangerously anemic, that her blood hemoglobin levels were at an almost fatal level. Normal is 12. She was at 3.0. She could have died of her anemia. Yeah. Um, I've never even heard of that before. This is a disgusting detail, which, because she's a medical professional, she shares without any emotion or adornment. There's a test that they do... um, to determine if your lungs were healthy, and they try to see if a section of your lung will float. And it should. Healthy lungs will float, apparently. Um, Three of the sections of her lungs sank. Um, She had severe pneumonia. She'd been walking around with it for some time. So this idea that she just had a little cold she picked up in Puerto Rico, it's not really being borne out by the autopsy. Um, The pneumonia is the cause of death. But honestly, and I kept waiting for them to say this, and I'm not a medical professional, pneumonia is the cause of a lot of death. But it's it's not it it's like a predatory condition, right? Like like 
if you'll forgive it's me, opportunistic. My father died of pneumonia, but he died of it because he'd been in the hospital with a brain tumor and all the problems related to that, and the pneumonia is what got him. So it's sort of like, from a medical perspective, it's an answer, but it's not really an answer. Excuse me. Yeah, because <laughs> they also did toxicology reports that showed that she had, you know, kind of everything in her system. Yeah. Um, so that's then followed up by this surprise. The do- I'm speaking of the documentary sort of structure now. Simon Monjack's mother and brother have reached out to the filmmakers and they, they have volunteered to give interviews on behalf of the family. Okay, boom. And so the timeline pops back to Hollywood 1999 where we start to uh, speak to people who encountered Simon in the years before he met Brittany. And they talk about how he would attend dinner parties and claim to be the largest private collector of Vermeers, that he dated Elle McPherson. Um, all of these stories are not true. They're, none of them are born Not out. even remotely. Yeah. And, and he's is like there's nothing about him that would suggest that any of it is true. Like the fact that anybody would believe any of that stuff from him just seems preposterous. And somebody presents it as saying the way that he would get his entree is that he'd have a beautiful young woman with him. Right. And he was actually br- making the claims on right. his behalf. Exactly. And she would be the reason he was kind of invited everywhere, too. They would want the pretty young thing at the table. And then he would slide in as her date. And because he was not some gorgeous Adonis, if you will. Um, and he would then start laying all of these claims on the table. So um, we now hear from Linda. No, he's not even, he was ill groomed. You know was, what I mean? Yeah, there was nothing about him. He's repellent. Yeah, I don't get it. And as we get further into the special, we're going to visit aspects of his younger life. And, and anyway, um, but first we talk to his family. Linda Monjack is his mother, James Monjack is his brother. Um, this was weird. I wasn't quite sure what they were trying to do. Were they trying to defend Simon or they were, they, Linda describes him as charming and having a high IQ as a child, but his brother who's sitting right next to her on the same sofa says he was very manipulative. It's like, I'm like, did you guys talk to each other before you did this interview? I'm not sure they were, they speak at all. They didn't talk to each other during the interview. They were (laughs) on opposite ends of the sofa. They did not seem comfortable with each other. And it was a very strange kind of take on it. It was as though they were kind of in on it or defending themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was very little concern for Simon. Yeah. They, 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 the mother makes clear in this moment that the dad died when Simon was young and that after that, she says, basically, he detached from reality. So she's kind of calling her son a liar, but she's trying to justify it and give right. it a source, right? Um they were in touch with the family after he married Brittany. Uh, Linda Monjack says, I spoke to Brittany shortly before her death. She was talking about how tired and out of breath she was, and I encouraged her to go to the doctor. She apparently never went. Right. Um, after Brittany's death, Simon is now worried, excuse me, Linda is now worried for Simon's health. Um, and this is one of those moments where I knew, I felt like I knew what was happening, but they didn't say it specifically, that there was a moment where she couldn't get in touch with him. And then finally he took her call and said, I'm alive. I went, I went to bed, but, but I'm alive. And I'm like, if you're saying that when you woke up, it's probably because you took a lot of pills hoping not to wake up. That was how I interpreted that moment. Maybe. So Simon is a mess is really the point that he's clearly the substance abuse issues are spiraling further out of control. Um. Uh, blah blah blah. We we now bunch to 142 days after her death, and again, I don't know what this timeline is about. 
Um, but we go back to Amber Ryland, the journalist who brought the flowers, who went to the Chateau Marmont with Simon. She's on vacation with, we reveal, her, her female significant her other, right? And she's got a ton of voice messages from Simon, like a ton of calls. And she is on vacation. She's not working. And clearly Simon is needy and manipulative right. and unstable. So she ignores them. Um, and Simon dies. And maybe that's what the clock was about? Yeah. The, the time between the two, because it's not very long after after she dies. Right. Um, the day before his death, he has a meeting with his publicist, Roger Neal. Uh, Roger describes him as being out of it, struggling to remain conscious during the meeting. I mean, that's how fucked up he must have yeah, been. nodding out during the, the conversation, just eyes closed, just out, and then coming back on and right. continuing as though nothing had happened. And this gets to... What you brought up earlier. Right. Simon's cause of death is listed as community-acquired acute bronchial pneumonia. Very similar cause of death of Brittany's. Um, Roger, the publicist, says there was mold in the house. You could see it because it was, it was the house was being mouth. badly taken yeah, care of. Yeah, the house was covered with mold. Dr. Shinen responds to the mold rumors and says, I didn't see any evidence of mold in Brittany's lungs or organs. And that's the first I've heard that. Because at my point, my connection to hearing about this story on the news was, I assumed it was something to do with that house. Right, exactly. That there was some mold or whatever. When he died, too, it was like, yeah, there's something going on with that house. But we kind of take a deep dive into this we meet dr cyril wecht you've seen him before right he's like always interviewed he's a celebrity forensic pathologist and he says um because britney's father suddenly appears out of nowhere claiming that he has somehow come into custody of some medical results that opportunistic fuck right the guy the deadbeat dad who was also teamed up with the president i'm putting in air quotes the president of britney's fan club because the president of britney's fan club should be celebrating her deadbeat dad who left the mom when she was a kid. Um, They claim, they do the media rounds, and he claims, I've got these medical results that show she had tons of heavy metals in her system. They were in her hair. I've got it. It's proof right here. Uh, She was being poisoned, right? She was being poisoned. So Dr. Cyril Wecht, who's a rock star in this field, he analyzes the results and he says, no, because if you're being poisoned, they won't be, these heavy metals will not be in your hair. They will be in your roots. They will have had to pass through your hair into your actual bloodstream to have any effect. Right. What you're seeing is hair product. <laughs> you're seeing hair dye, hairspray. And yeah. Brittany had tons of hair dye and hair coloring and whatever. So obviously that's what it was. And right. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't your hair grows out from the roots. And so the reason your hair can be an interesting sample of, you know, you're being poisoned or something is because it will contain whatever is in your body. Right. But if it, but if it's not present in the root, then it's just on the hair. So it was only a topical application of heavy metals and not the cause of Brittany's death. So that kind of just vanishes. Um, so there's some other stuff that's covered, and I don't really know. Like the whole thing with the trainer, like Simon in 2007 took her to well, a celebrity trainer. This is trainer. the point where they, they kind of introduced that one of the things that Simon did was take over her finances. And right. he was investing her money yeah. in property and um, stocks and bonds or whatever, but also in jewelry, jewelry. in buying very expensive jewelry. He was, he'd commissioned for them to make 
a diamond tiara that was based on the one that Audrey Hepburn wears in Breakfast at Tiffany's, for instance. But Mm -hmm. it was grand pieces of jewelry, but investment jewelry, Mm -hmm. not, um, you know, just playing around. So he was very much, in in addition to being in charge of her life, he was in charge of those kinds of things as well. Right. He was managing the um, the money for, for everybody. But after his death, then Sharon, who is actually the beneficiary of uh, of the estate to begin with, Simon never was. <laughs> yeah. Like, Simon was not the person who inherited. Like, right. Which, I'm all, which I think is a really strange um, part of the, uh, the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's like, Trying to get, she's a girl trying to get by in the big city. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, we've just covered the reveal, right? You just said that the jewelry was all fake. No, I haven't. Said okay. That. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to get us there. So, after Simon's death, Sharon calls Roger Neal, the publicist, and right. says, I've got it. This is what I've inherited. Um, we've got to assign a value to this. He takes it to three different jewelers in Beverly Hills and they say, Roger, this is all junk. Like, none of this is real. And that was the moment that changed everything for me when I was watching this. Yeah. Because it was like, oh, no, he's not just weird. He's a con artist. He actually blew $3 million of her money. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in the years, the three years that they were married, he was he was burning through a million dollars a year. Absolutely, during the three years that they were married. So, and he's left Sharon, kind of destitute. There's the house and like its contents, but that's really kind of all she's got left. Whatever's in the bank. And from and this then moment, they start to tell you Simon's real story. Simon's real story. And at this point, Sharon leaves the stage, and she has kind of never come back. Sharon is still alive as of this recording. And she has never given an interview. She is apparently living in seclusion somewhere in Southern California. But that discovery that Simon had defrauded them to that level just banished her from public life. Because she believed in Simon as much as yeah. as Brittany did. Like, the friends actually staged an intervention at, some, right. at one point, And they just said, this is ridiculous. We trust Simon. Mm-hmm. And turned them away. They couldn't, people could not get past not only Brittany, but also Sharon. And so when Sharon realizes the level of betrayal, when she realizes that all the jewelry is fake, she actually says to Roger, she says, well, then I guess that there's no point in looking into the stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. Oh, it just must have been devastating. It was just the level of betrayal in that moment really totally re-racked yeah. my view of Simon. Yeah. And then the... the, the and then it gets worse. Simon has not just one child by another woman, but two children by another woman. And they come to talk, the moms come to talk about their children. Elizabeth Ragsdale is the one that is, has a huge story to tell. In June of 1998, she was living in Paris. She got herself an apartment. She was going to write a book. She, I think, clearly had some family money happening if she Apparently. was able to make those choices. I know from experience. Um, and she is introduced to Simon. He's younger. They show a picture of him. He's somewhat more attractive. Uh, she's intrigued. They get together. He proposes to her and Herod's. He just pours on the charm. And then one night, she's not in the mood for sex. And he counters by telling her that he has spinal cancer and he has to get shark cartilage treatment in Monaco. And this is a lie that he told people in Hollywood as well, that he had been a cancer patient and he'd gotten this shark cartilage treatment that had uh, cured him. 
Uh, so, uh, and then they have sex. She feels so bad for him that she makes love to him, even though she isn't in yeah, the Yeah, that's mood. really the nuclear option to get sex. I've I mean, got really, cancer, and I've got to go in for treatment tomorrow. Like, not, wow. Like, yeah. I'm leaving to fight in World War II tomorrow. You better, right. But World War II was over in 1945, wasn't it? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> um, so he also uses the shark treatments, a phrase I never thought I'd say on this podcast, that they have to get pregnant right away because the treatments are going to make him sterile. Right. So he forces her to get pregnant with his child on a timeline she's not comfortable with. She gets incredibly sick during the pregnancy and wants her friends and family to come, and he won't let them. He isolates her, even though she's basically incapacitated. But she's got that one friend. She's got that Eric Shaw Quinn in her Eric life, Shaw Quinn in her who's life. like, "Oh no, you won't." Putting up with it. That was one of the most touching moments. The moment with Kathy Najemi where she said, "You know, I've made my peace with it, but every now and again, it just—it's like, why didn't I just go over there and pound on that door?" Yeah. Until she hated me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this one friend does with Elizabeth Ragdale. And she flies to see them and she says, you know, this is a bad situation. Um, You know, you need to get her to the hospital. And he does. Finally, she gets medical care. But he insists that she have the baby on U.S. soil. So they go to New York, even though she's gone through this ordeal. He doesn't go with her. He doesn't go with her. That's right. I'm sorry. I messed up that detail. And when she finally calls him and says, I'm in New York, I'm going to... He hangs up on her. And never has anything to do with her again. Never has anything to do with the son. Nothing. Nothing. He just completely abandons them. In April 2007, Elizabeth Ragsdale is living in Paris once more. She's riding the subway. Or the metro. I don't know what they call it there. The subway. The metro. The metro. She's reading a celebrity gossip rag, and there she sees the wedding announcement of Simon Monjack and Brittany Murphy. And she fucking calls him. Give her credit. She's like, you are blah, blah, blah. And he alternates between offering to buy her a house and threatening to come and take the son he's had nothing to do with. You know, so clearly she says he was trying to keep me quiet. Right. And they show a picture of Elijah Ragsdale, and oh my God, is it his son? He looks exactly it's like dead him. Ringer. So off of that, we bounce we bounce back into sort of the last moments of her life, and and we start to see that the story about the Puerto Rico story was they didn't just take a beach trip to Puerto Rico and she picked up a cold. It was the last job she could get. She was a disaster on set. They fired her after two days. I mean, it was it was a mess. and that was it was a series of those. They interviewed a number of different directors and even yes. a makeup artist that she tried. He had taken over doing her makeup. And it made her look like a clown. They said he'd, he'd given her, he'd done the, tried to do the trick where he gave her extra lips by giving her lipstick outside the lines of her existing lips and she looked ridiculous and it was, and they have all these clips and it's it's terrible to see. And it, um, that's when the Kathy Jimmy moment you just talked about happened. But she also says her husband came in one day and said, I have bad news. And she knew immediately. She said, Brittany's dead, isn't she? Yeah. You know, and because they were, I think, working on King of the Hill together. And they said that she would no longer, Brittany would no longer have lunch with her cast members. She would go out to the car and just sit there with Simon. I mean, it was just crazy. And that's, to me, the part of the story, like, was like was he her dealer were they using together like there's an aspect of that mm-hmm. in there like just going out to the car and 
doing drugs with him. And then she would change. They said she would be great to work with in the morning. And then after that, she would be mm-hmm. impossible. Like all of those things seem to be like there's some kind of drug problem going on here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it just that was the sort of, you know, like. I don't think Simon killed her. In fact, the Golden Goose, I think Simon would have wanted her to stay alive. Right. Um, if anything, because she wasn't getting rid of him and, you know, she was still the good little earner. So, but I think there were their behavior. The other thing that was really strange to me about this, um, this was that there was moments of like, where did this footage come from? Mm-hmm. There, there was... Like there was a shot of them. They would apparently come home and then um, order food, stay up really late. Oh, that was a reenactment. Take weird pictures. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. This food, it it was very much, it seemed like there was a reenactment of her sitting on the foot of the bed. Yeah, and the Chinese food was there and they would stay up all night. That was a reenactment. I mean, it was very this sort of. Drug life. It was a drug life. They would stay up all night. And so there is, there was that weird tension for me as a viewer um was simon to blame for her actions as a drug addict or was simon exercising what i think what they call coercive control now is the is the latest phrase for it right was he exercising a form of emotional abuse was he preying on someone who had pre-existing addiction issues and using those to his advantage i mean certainly that describes selling all her you know spending all her fucking obviously, money obviously yeah i yeah. mean obviously he was taking advantage of the situation but i think part of the reason that she participated in it had to do with substance yeah. abuse like that just was sort of my takeaway well you know let's let the final question and this is an interesting way to end this right this is Ed Winter saying, the cause of death is not a mystery. The mystery is why she didn't go to the yeah. doctor. And the answers to that question are endless. A dr- an active drug addict doesn't want to go to a doctor if they can't control the narrative, right. if it's not their drug pusher. What if they get taken right. off their drugs? Right. They hate that. Um, uh, Simon maybe doesn't want to take her because he doesn't want to expose the extent to which, you know, like this was a real medical problem that had intruded on a general state of ill health that was being caused by abusing drugs. Um, eating disorders were also part of it. Yes. You know, she wasn't eating the right. anemia. Like, one yeah. of the things they said was that she might have, if she hadn't had pneumonia, she might have died of the anemia, yeah. which I've never heard of anybody dying of anemia before. I know. I, I It just seemed like the final thesis of this was that this was, a, that, that something happened in that moment, which they really kind of set up or platformed of that producer saying, cute but not fuckable, where the light of what made her her got slowly pressed out of her, that she could have maybe potentially been a wonderful character actress and gone on to be Kathy Najimy or someone, you know, like that. But instead, the attempt to make herself Gwyneth Paltrow when her body wouldn't necessarily cooperate, when her psychology wouldn't necessarily cooperate, had this terrible ruinous effect on her that set her up and made her vulnerable for this predator. I know that's like, kind of loosey-goosey cobbling all together. But I think, like you said at the outset, the documentary in general was so neutral on so many things, it kind of leaves it up to us. And one of the things that they talked about, and I think um, Amy Heckerling may have been the one to to talk about it, but it was in and around, um, maybe it was that other actress that was her friend, Rachel, I think was her name, maybe, um, that, that when you were young and on the set... 
they just gave you your assignments and yeah. your books and you could turn them in whenever you wanted to. The, mm-hmm. You weren't going to school. You were not. She grew up in an environment where she was not learning the coping skills that you might have gotten in junior high school right. for dealing with bullies or people who were taking advantage of you. Right. Maybe she was too trusting that, that a lot of the skills she might have gotten in life she didn't learn because she didn't have those kinds of experiences right. totally. in which to learn them in a less destructive way. So that, that she by was the time not, she was yeah. learning the, the lesson of, you know, I knew you were trouble when you when you walked in, um, the lessons um, for uh, that she, she didn't learn them until she was 32. Right. No. Instead of learning them when she was 15. Yeah, totally. And and I mean, I don't know what role her mother had to play in that or didn't have to play in that. I mean, she came out to Hollywood with her. She was in that same environment. She was a young woman raising a daughter alone. You know, they couldn't see Simon coming. I mean, there's definitely, I think, that aspect to this story. Or even see him once he arrived. Yeah. I, I, I thought she, it was a terrible... You know, it's a terribly sad story. I thought she was so talented. I just adored yeah, her. I thought she was just wonderful. delightful. And I also thought she had a level of enthusiasm that seemed genuine that people often pathologize and criticize as being suspicious or whatever and, and you know, treat as being weird, as being a form of weird. I remember being in a meeting with a producer years ago who had just met with her and was like, Oh God, she was so exhausted. You know that bitchy kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, she was so, and it's what he was describing was she sounded cheerful and committed and engaged. And this was before. This was years before, um, you know Simon and everything got yeah. bad. You know, so I always had a sort of like defensive attitude towards her around her that that she was this special sort of fragile talent that other people were going to make fun of. You know, like some girl I would have wanted to be friends with at school and would have stuck up for her in front of the other kids. You know, I never fucking met Brittany Murphy, so I can't talk like I'm her best friend. Everybody drinks. <laughs> Everybody drinks. But it was it was really sad. It was one of the saddest it I is think, really, episodes it's a we've tragic, ever done. Tragic, tragic story. And there's not, in the end, ultimately a crime here, unless you know, manipulating prescriptions and drug fraud. abuse. Simon's fraud. Obviously, think, yeah. his defrauding them yeah. and robbing her. But he was married to her, so really community property he you know blew his own money like mm-hmm. it's not even really theft yeah there the fact that Sharon didn't have anything to inherit is not actually a crime if he blew all of their communal property while he was still married to her like yeah. I, I I don't know totally but um but yeah it is really a great tragedy um because she was yeah like you say she seemed to be a remarkable young woman and Everybody had the attitude of what didn't we get to see? Yeah, because we lost her so right. early. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's holiday time. <laughs> yeah. Happy holiday. But because we're us, we've decided to serve up the holidays fucked up origin stories. That's next week. It's not <laughs> technically true crime, although sometimes <laughs> the facts of the history of the holidays can seem pretty criminal. We're discussing an episode of the history of the holidays on the History Channel. Well, last year we did entitled one Wait, of Let the Me most Finish. Horrific. Right. It's entitled The Real Story of Christmas, and that's season one, episode eight. Okay, sorry, as you were. Okay. I had to get all that. Last year we did the most horrific Christmas crime, and we were like, okay, this year maybe something lighter. And so we thought, okay, we'll do a history of the holidays. There's this there's this special on the History Channel, and it the the description sounded like, okay, this still is kind of our brand. They're talking about how um caroling started as a tradition of coming and threatening people to give you drink and food and drink or you would 
you know, throw bricks. It was basically or trick or treating for alcoholics, is what yeah. it was. Yeah, yes, it seemed absolutely. like that was how Christmas caroling started. And it was like, okay, well, this could be interesting. So it might be fun, um, but it'll be more Christmas. Yes. And nobody will come and murder an entire family and set up. I could on not fire. do another holiday massacre. Yeah. We've done multiple holiday massacres. We've really for some got reason, that covered. The holidays lend themselves to massacres. I totally get doing, it. Yeah. It makes sense probably to our listeners as well. Yeah. But um, but this year we're not going to participate in that. We're going to do a fun, lighthearted look at the history of the holidays. Absolutely. That's next week. And until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.